it's uh, near the end of the Old Testament. And it's in a period of history for God's people where there's been this sort of partial return to the promised land. Uh, and so Zechariah is uh, ministering at a time when for around 20 years there's sort of been this remnant who had returned. There's still the, the Persian rule that allows some concessions for them to dwell in the land, but they're certainly far from being free. And it seems like the, the common experience was one that was quite underwhelming and filled with a fair bit of disappointment. Uh, the temple was undergoing uh, the usual rebuilding process, you know, everything's behind schedule, the completion date's a little bit unknown. And so this promise that God's people would be restored, that God would return, they're not yet fully realised. And so for God's people, there are questions about God. What does the future hold for us? You know, we, we've experienced that the punishment from our forefathers for their sin. We've experienced what it means to be exiled from the land, to have you removed from our community. And, and so now God speaks through this messenger, Zechariah, to, to deliver some promises and an invitation. We saw it in chapter 1, return to me and I'll return to you. It's this invitation to turn from worshipping other things, to stop trusting in self. Turn to me and I'll return to you. God's inviting his people for a, a, a heart, head and hands involvement of worship to him. And so uh, we saw that uh, the angel in chapter 1 was, was crying out for God to be merciful. And, and God heard that, that cry. He says, I will return with mercy. And we heard that uh, the thing that was driving God was his, his good jealousy for his people, his increasing anger towards the sin that was so evident in the other nations. And then in chapter 2, there was this sort of invitation for God's people to, to think bigger as this, sort of this, this vision of trying to measure out uh, where the temple's going to be and how it's going to fit in Jerusalem. God was speaking through Zechariah's vision that actually his vision for the future is not just returning to the past. It's not just the descendants of Abraham who are going to receive the blessings that God has in store. God is forming a new people in a new place where people from all nations can come and reside. And so I reckon one of the big questions for God's people at this time is, is this sort of question of, well, how are things going to be different? <laughs> And one of the, the big doubts that God's people and all of us face is the reality of sin, isn't it? How are things going to be different when sin is still so evident? Sin had clearly messed up the past for Israel. And, and despite having the priests who were there to administer sacrifices and offerings, it wasn't really enough for the generations before to stop the pervasiveness and the destructiveness that sin has. And so in our passage today, God gives a vision for the future, a vision about how God is going to deal with the problem of sin and what hope there can be for the future to make sure that history doesn't just repeat. And so really, I think our big point for today is that how God deals with sin shapes how we deal with sin. How God deals with sin shapes the way that we deal with sin. Now, a key way for dealing with sin for God's people in the past was the priest and the temple. The priest had a central role in the sacrificial system, really the intermediary between God and his people. 
representing mankind to God and in some ways representing God to mankind, in the past, sin couldn't be dealt with individually. You couldn't just sort of pray individually. You had to go to the temple. Offerings and sacrifices needed to be administered. And so the high priest has a really integral role. But Zechariah's contemporaries had two major problems. Firstly, they had a high priest who was unclean. And secondly, they had a temple that wasn't yet constructed. And so the first of those problems, the uncleanliness of the high priest, is what our vision and our passage looks at today. Uh, The reading is centred around this person, Joshua, uh, the son of Jozadak, the high priest uh, for God's people. It seems that he had been in this role when they'd been deported um, to Babylon. from the They'd been exiled out of Jerusalem earlier. And, and he comes back still with this role as high priest. And so just a little bit of a, a structure for our passage today is uh, the first sort of five verses have this, this courtroom interplay, this accusation and rebuke. And, and then verses 6 and 7, we see how Joshua is recommissioned for his role And then in verses 8 to 10, there's some symbols of what is yet to come. So firstly, in verses 1 and 2, we see this heavenly courtroom scene. It's this scene where there's Joshua, who's sitting as the accused. There's Satan, the prosecutor. And then there's God, the judge. Now, literally here, uh, the Satan means the accuser. And so a key role for God's adversary is to bring accusation. Accusations against God and accusations against his people. And whilst we see that he's not given a voice to deliver these accusations, we could probably consider that he had some fairly strong accusations to make towards God. God, you failed in your plan to have a people of your own. Surely you can't allow sinful and disobedient people to be in your presence and still call yourself a pure and holy and just God. Perhaps he's got some accusations ready for Joshua. You can't pretend to be qualified to be the high priest. Look at the way you've lived, the way you've acted. It seems that the the accuser has some pretty strong accusations that are well-founded. There's a high priest who is guilty and a nation that is devastated. And so as we consider how God's people are going to navigate sin, it's also good for us to start to think about how we deal with our sin. Because as we are aware of sin, the accusations, often well-founded, come at us in a whole range of ways. And our strategy to try and deal with sin can be quite varied. Perhaps as you try and deal with sin, you ignore it. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of just sort of trying to disassociate yourself from these actions, a selective memory. Oh, surely I didn't say that. I didn't really do that. Or perhaps we deal with our sin by trying to compare it to other people and think, well, it's not as bad as what they've done. Or we try and balance it out against our good endeavours. Look, that was just a rash act. It was just a release of a pressure valve. What are some of the strategies that you use to deal with your sin? Perhaps you excuse sin. Well, everyone does it. Everyone lies about that. Or perhaps you blame people. What would you expect me to do? 
Sometimes we can deal with sin by just resenting God and his standard and say, look, that's unrealistic. Or perhaps we sort of start to redefine God's standard. Well, I think the Bible really says that this is okay. We can delight in sin or we can despair in sin. The ways in which we deal with sin and the accusations that come against us as sinners is vastly varied. But we see here that before the accusations can be made, God intervenes. The accuser is silenced. We see there in verse 2 that the accuser is rebuked by the Lord. Despite having a strong argument, probably well-founded accusations, he's not given a platform to speak. He is silenced. And why? Well, because God has chosen Joshua. God has chosen his people. God here is reaffirming his commitment to his people. God has been involved from the very beginning as he calls his people to himself. God's people are always central to his purposes. And so despite their apparent failure and having some valid reasons for regret, despite knowing that probably the accusations that are coming are well-founded, what we see here is that no accusations will stop God's plan being realised. Now, God's purposes will be realised, not because he's going to deny that sin existed or just sort of turn a blind eye to things, but God is going to deal with sin head on. And so what we see in our passage today is that God deals with sin. Now, verse 2 refers to Joshua as this sort of burning stick, and it seems to be this image that having chosen Joshua and his people, that God has rescued Joshua from the exile for a purpose, to administer the role as the high priest for the people. And it's clearly that Joshua wasn't rescued because of how impressive he was, but really from verse 3, he's rescued because he needed rescuing. He's described there as having filthy clothes, being filthy, being unclean. And it's not just sort of that yuckiness that if you sort of fly to Europe and maybe you haven't um, had a shower for like 36, nearly 40 hours, and you're just like, oh, I just feel disgusting, I just sort of need a wash. No, no, this is morally unclean. Joshua is not qualified to be the high priest. His role was to be in the very presence of God and he, by his actions and his character, is disqualified from that. And so here he is, standing before the angel, a high priest who's unable to serve the very function of his job. And so the question is, what is God going to say to him? Well, we might sort of think, go and clean yourself up. You can't come in here dressed like that. But it's nothing like that, is it? Take off that filth, because I've taken away your sin, the angel says. And I will put fine garments on you. You see, God deals with Joshua's sin. God cleans him and reclothes him. It's this picture of outward and inward restoral and renewal. You see, it's because God deals with sin that the accuser can be rebuked. 
But God is the one who takes away sin and renews his people. And so now Satan's accusations are unfounded. The accusations that he has ready for Joshua will no longer stick because Joshua is transformed by God. You see, it's God's initiative and action that that changes the whole dynamics of this courtroom scene. And sort of so, so drastic are the events that unfolded. Verse 5 is like Zechariah can't help but involve himself. Yeah, he now speaks into the events of what he's seen. Joshua has moved from being unclean to clean. And Zechariah is so convinced that he's been transformed that he, he sees what's missing. That this headgear, that this turban, that the high priest's hat, he places it in the vision. <laughs> On Joshua's head. And so now by the end of verse 5, Joshua has been reclothed and is ready to fulfill his role. So this is how God deals with our sin and our mess. The very thing that Joshua has experienced, this cleansing, this being reclothed, this movement from guilty to innocent. It sort of echoes what we we know in uh, Romans chapter 8, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Accusations are no longer able to stick when God comes and deals with sin. And so now having been cleansed and reclothed, we see from verses 6 to 7 that Joshua is recommissioned. God says, if you walk in obedience and keep my requirements, then you'll govern the temple. And you'll have charge of the courts. You see, he's commissioning Joshua for ritual and moral authority. But how he lives will qualify him for the role. Having been cleansed and commissioned to lead, he's invited to have this special access in verse 7 in the heavenly realms. He'll be given a place, you know, when it says, among those standing here. It's this access with heavenly beings in the heavenly realms. So dramatic is the change in Joshua's experience that now he has great access to God. And so as God's people are sort of a little bit underwhelmed about how God's going to execute his plans, as they have this issue with an unclean high priest... We're starting to see through this vision about how things are going to be different going forward. God dealing with sin. Now God's people have someone who can mediate between them. And so there's some security going forward that God has provided the means for God's people to have his presence with them. God has provided a solution to the first problem that there was an unclean high priest. And so now the hope for the future is not in their ability, but in God's power to deal with sin, to take sin away. That God is committed to the people whom he's chosen and that he's faithful to the promises that he'd laid out before. But we see here in verses 6 and 7 that it is dependent on Joshua taking obedience seriously. He is required to execute his duties honourably. And now there's no exact record in the Old Testament about how Joshua goes with this. But this vision wasn't for the immediate state. This was looking forward to the ultimate high priest who would come. 
And so from verses 8 to 10, we're reminded that this transformation of Joshua is a foretaste of what is to come. And so with the three images we see from verses 8 to 10, we start to see how God is going to deal with sin and take sin away, not just for one person, but for humanity. And so Joshua and his associates in the priesthood are addressed there in verse 8. And some promises about what is to come are outlined. There's three things in verses 8 to 10. Firstly, the branch. Secondly, the stone. And then thirdly, this, this picture of that day. The first one in verse 8 with the branch, which is linked to the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah of there being a new righteous king who was going to spring up like a new shoot that would give hope that the, the past unrighteous leaders would be replaced by someone who actually honoured God. And we see here in verse 8 that this new branch will have a servant nature, which again evokes the great suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. This branch who, uh, there's a little bit more reference to it in chapter 6, so we'll spend some time on it then, but who becomes Jesus as the, the lasting Messiah King. The second promise that's given as a symbol in verse 9 is this of a stone. Now, now some people sort of think it's, it's around the, the rebuilding of the temple, which is quite prominent in Zechariah and is a key role for God's people at that time. But I think it does seem to, seem to be better suited to, to link to a couple of um, stone-like um, materials. Firstly, an engraved plate that needed to be on the high priest's uh, hat. And this uh, that we read about in Exodus 28 was inscribed with holy to the Lord. And then there was this other sort of stone object that had the 12 tribes of Israel lined on it. This stone that God's people are going to be perfected so that they are holy to the Lord. That The symbolic thing that the high priest would do with the administering of the sacrifices is a foretaste for what the great high priest Jesus would do as he makes God's people suitable to be in God's presence. And so then verse 10 is the third sign and it refers to this day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, now I think this day that's being looked forward to is the day when Jesus returns. When all who have already had their sin dealt with, taken away, will be able to share in God's blessings. And what's interesting here is that it's not just an individual connection with God, but it's a communal sharing with my neighbours from the vine and the fig. It's this symbol of life when sin has been dealt with. It's this picture of security and prosperity. It's like spending an afternoon with good friends around good food and good drink. And so this is this future that God's people are given to look forward to. God will deal with sin, and when sin is dealt with, access to God exists. And so it's important for us to consider how we try and deal with sin. You see, the invitation here is for us to ask God to take our sin away, if that's what we haven't done yet. 
But for those of us who have asked Jesus to take away our sin, it's, a, it's an encouragement to, to give up on other strategies that we might allow into our life about how we deal with sin. It's a reminder to give up on trying to just ignore our sin or disassociate from our sin or to compare our sin or justify our sin with other things. It's a reminder that we should not be trying to excuse or blame others for our sin or to delight in our sin or, on the other hand, despair in our sin. This is a great reminder that when we want to come to God and have him deal with our sin, our sin can be dealt with. So I guess the question we need to ask is, have you asked God to deal with your sin? Or are you trying to still deal with it yourself? You see, the offer that's available to all people from God is to have your sin taken away. God wants to clean you, re-clothe you, and then recommission you. And this only comes through Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can take our sin away. Now, I heard it this week, and here's a little bit around the traps of sort of forgiving yourself. And and I guess um, as this sort of discussion was playing out on the radio this week, I'm like, I guess there's there's something appealing about wanting to forgive yourself. And and, and maybe if there's sort of some neutral decisions that you've made that you're sort of like, oh, I should just get over that, you know. Um, I should have taken that job, or I shouldn't have gone on that holiday. I should have invested my money here, or I should have moved over there. Perhaps decisions that are sort of a little bit neutral that you can sort of linger on. There is probably some worth in just sort of trying to release yourself from that. But we've got to just be clear that sin isn't just a bad choice. The sin is when we offend our maker. The invitation here is to have access to God. It's an invitation to be in relationship with Him. And so this invitation to return to Him, it involves us recognising and owning our sin. Both the things that we've done and the things that we failed to do. And so when we come to God, when we return to God, come to Him in repentance where we own our sin, where we recognise that we are accountable to God, that our sin offends Him, when we ask Him to take that away, God can take our sin away. We can be cleansed. We can be reclothed. We can be recommissioned for a new purpose. And at that point, no matter how strong the accusations might be coming in our mind from the evil one, They come with no substance. Because now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, the way that God deals with sin, that he is wanting and willing and able to take it away, has to shape the way that we deal with the sin in our life. So as we wrestle with our failures and as we doubt that we are free from accusation. This passage gives us an invitation to trust that the great high priest Jesus, who who came living a life of full cleanliness, who who offered his body for our place as a substitute, who, who died on the cross, that that 
sacrifice is sufficient to deal with our sin. And for for those who hold to him, there is now no condemnation. And so how, how do we live then? Where do we look going forward? Well, I think verse 10 is that great future hope. It's this picture of access. That day when Jesus returns, when we can share with our neighbour just the the freedom of life without sin, enjoy the blessings, the fig and the vine of our maker. This is God's purpose, that we would be free from sin, that we would live knowing him and being his people together. And so what are you going to do when sin is evident, when the accusations are around? Well, we can take courage that God has both the ability and the desire to take away our sin. And we can look forward again to that day when we'll be free from sin and we will enjoy what God has established for eternity. As I was trying to get... An understanding of you know what this future might look like. Um, I was reminded by uh, Tuesday night this week. It was, it was Halloween just gone, and, and our kids had sort of uh, organised some other friends to go with. So Elena wasn't working. I didn't have a meeting. So we're like, oh, what should we do? So uh, I got trusty George Foreman grill out and uh, got some sausages, and we set it out in the front garden. And Helena got some chairs and uh, a bottle of wine. And it just you know, the great thing about Halloween. Um, is that people walk in the streets all the time. And so we had friends and parents that we hadn't seen for years who were walking around and they come in, sit down, have some water, have a, a mandarin. We were one of those households that were offering mandarins to the kids. Um, have a sausage and, and delight. And I think that's really what access is. You know, the analogy is that when we're free from sin, we have the opportunity just to delight in what God's purposes are. And so, as a group of people who have trusted Jesus, who are looking forward to that day, we've got the opportunity to provide these little foretastes, these little glimpses to others of what God's heart is, what God's invitation is. To not try and undermine sin, but to be free from them, to be cleansed, reclothed and recommissioned for an eternal purpose. Let's, uh, let's pray and thank God for his great power and plan. Our loving Father, thank you that you are the one who can restore us. You're the one who can deal with our sin. Father, as the accusations might be quite specific, or weighty that we are experiencing for the sin that perhaps we have delighted in or we've been trying to justify. Help us to come knowing that through through the Lord Jesus there is the security of forgiveness. Help us to be people who confess our sin and receive the forgiveness that is found in Christ.
Father, we know that until that day of Jesus returning, it'll still be a wrestle with our flesh and with the evil one. But we do look forward to, with great hope, for an eternity free from the baggage of sin, free to delight in in knowing you, loving you, and experiencing life and relationships as they were designed to be. Father, we pray that as a community who are seeking to follow Jesus together, that you'd give us encouragement, that you'd give us a a zeal to, to take sin seriously, 